Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of the Armenian Music Podcast. I'm Rafi Maneshian. Today's episode is entitled Resurrecting Ghosts My Conversation with Ian Nagoski. as performed by Udi Hrant Kenkulian. The track was part of a Udi Hrant compilation restored, sequenced, and released by Canary Records called Can All Times Be One? Solo, Duo, and Trio Performances from the 1950s independent U.S. labels. Before we get to my conversation with Ian Nagoski, I wanted to say thanks for listening in. The program continues to gain listeners week over week, thanks to you. Please spread the news and hit that subscribe button on the digital platforms of your choice, including Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. Ian Nagoski is one of those rare people you meet who not only has a wealth of knowledge, but also knows how to craft a good story. A researcher and record producer based out of the Maryland area, Nagoski has spent more than a decade selecting historically relevant 78 RPM records from the early part of the 20th century and talking about them. He has given lectures at the United States Library of Congress, the Onassis Cultural Center in Athens, Greece, the University of Chicago, and New York University, amongst others. We'll be taking a look at the beginnings of the recording industry in the United States, starting with 78 RPMs and working our way toward the LP era. Eventually, our path will take us toward the ethnic Armenian experience in the first half of the 20th century as it relates to recorded music in America. Our conversation was recorded using Skype audio on June 6, 2020, and will be produced as a two-part episode. Sit back and listen while we take some of those oft-neglected 78 RPMs off the shelf and bring them back to life again. Every record has a story to tell. Ian's here to tell you about the record. And now, my conversation with Ian Nagoski. Ian Nagoski, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Hey, so you're calling from the Baltimore, Maryland area, (laughs) and you've kind of been known in certain musical and academic circles as a big-time record collector specifically 78 RPMs. How did you kind of get involved and what, where did your obsession with these 78s start from? Oh, well, I've been a record guy for kind of as long as I can remember since, you know, before I was a teenager, um, I was somebody with a voracious appetite for music and of all kinds. I played, came from a kind of musical household. And um, at some point in my teens, uh, after having had record store jobs already for years and worked in libraries, I just realized that there were 78 sitting around that uh, I didn't know what was on them, and there was no way to find out except listen to them. So I just started picking up records in languages other than English, because I only read and speak English. So yeah, 10 cents a piece, dollar a piece, something like that, 
$5 for a box and you bring home a box full of records in Russian or Japanese or whatever and just listen to them and find out, is there anything good on here? Is there anything I should know about or, you know, that is potentially interesting? And it was just a for fun thing. You know, I was just curious. Crash course in the history of the record industry. Um, Edison uh, successfully markets cylinder recordings starting about 1880 into the 1890s. Um, his original idea for what sound recording might be good for. Do, do you know this story? I, the, I know a little bit about it, but I think our audience would love it. Oh, okay. So yeah, Edison's, one of his first ideas for what he thought sound recording might be good for is to record the last words of the dying. He also proposed that it would be good for business purposes. Now, Edison was functionally deaf. He, looked, he had no ear for music, didn't really like music, didn't care about it. But it turned out that's one of the things that people turned, you know, wanted to buy on sound recordings. And um, they bought speeches, they bought comedy acts, uh, they bought all kinds of stuff, but music, a performance, a song. And there was already a big business in America in sheet music. So the record industry immediately ties itself to the existing music publishing industry of sheet music, which is very closely tied to the dominant musical form for more than half a century, uh, which is minstrel Um Then in Washington, D.C., uh, about 1890, uh, a German immigrant named Emil Berliner uh, invents disc recording and goes into a VHS Betamax war with Edison. Uh, Edison has this expensive format that has a limited uh, appeal because his, the kind of material he's releasing is middle class or aspiring. Um, it's stuff that's supposed to be morally good. Um, and the Emil Berliner company, which was called the Gramophone Company, starts putting out lots of stuff very cheaply, uh, the machine that it plays on doesn't even initially have a, a motor in it. It doesn't have a spring. You have to hand crank as you go, meaning the disc would warble and go, because you could never quite keep it steady, right? But it was cheap, much cheaper than the Edison thing with the motor in it, the, you know, the cylinder machine. And then as time goes on, Edison's, uh, the catalog evolves slowly, but the gramophone industries catalog expands super rapidly and puts out all kinds of stuff and very popular stuff, real kind of normal down home stuff. And then 1904, 1905, 1906, a guy who worked for Berliner uh, named Fred Gaysberg goes on this big trip, England, Italy, Russia, uh, um, uh, the Near East, um, India, Burma, Hong Kong, Japan, over two years. And in each place, he unloads this like pallets and pallets and crates and crates of gear and sets it up in a room and starts inviting musicians, finding musicians and bringing them in and recording them. And the idea was to create software that would make people want to buy the hardware. You know, give them a reason. Here's your music played back to you on this new amazing device that disembodies the voice and allows music to travel in this way through the discs. So, meanwhile, back in the U.S. on the East Coast, um, the gramophone company uh, begins to have market rivals. Uh, the Columbia Records uh, starts out um, out of the lab that Alexander Graham Bell uh, was running, who incidentally had a, a deaf wife and was working in sound partially in, in reaction to his, his wife's deafness. Um, anyway, uh, the gramophone company uh, has their technology stolen by one of their employees 
And then that employee preemptively sues the gramophone company, trying to claim that the gramophone company stole it from them. The gramophone company wins the lawsuit and changes its name to the victor because it was the victor of the lawsuit. Interesting. So then we wind up with two big record companies in the U.S., Columbia and Victor, and a bunch of other little record labels, including some really big ones in Europe, Odeon and HMV. HMV is tied to uh, Victor and, and England, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this massive proliferation of recording all over the Americas, Europe, Asia, um, and to some degree, uh, Africa. And so uh, that, you know, from 1905 to 1925, growth is just exponential. And there are all these innovations in technology uh, leading right up to uh, the invention of the microphone in 1925. Um, and then, you know, it's just all hell breaks loose. And, when, the, um, when the first recordings were made uh, in the early um, in the early 1900s, um, going into the, the teens, for example, what were kind of the biggest selling genres? We had talked about in the late 1800s, um, you know, spoken words, speeches, things of that nature. But as, let's say, music was starting to get popular mm. um, through this particular meeting, aside from the ethnic uh, markets, which we'll get to, what were the, the kind of the best selling or the most popular genres of music that were being recorded and consumed well it was the same stuff that people would go here in the theater um you know popular theater uh minstrelsy and vaudeville and that world of performers um pop songs of the day um lots of it uh all kinds of stuff um ladies whistling uh blackface uh songs they called coon songs, um, uh, all that stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it was exactly the same as, as what you would, would go see at the, at the theater locally for entertainment on, you know, they, places that were doing six shows a day in big cities. Um, there's hundreds and hundreds of performers. Um, but also... One of the innovations of Fred Gaysberg, who worked for the Gramphone Company, was that he went to Italy and he had this crazy idea uh, where he offered a very, very good classical singer an insane amount of money to record like six songs. Okay. Like they were never going to make that money back. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, just crazy money. And so they recorded Enrico Caruso. Interesting. The result of Caruso having recorded was that the status of the record player and the record itself went from being a toy and a novelty to a device for transmitting high art. Just overnight like that. Oh, if Caruso recorded, then also all the big opera stars now have permission to record and to take it seriously and are being treated well by the record companies and their status is going up because more people are hearing their music and they're becoming more famous and the record companies are getting all of the gloss on them from the these great stars this is the period of the the greatest flourishing of uh high art classical singing in, in the west um you know it was a big thing people really respected opera singers so in some ways, um, you see this shift go to, let's say, the, the fine arts. However, let's talk a little bit about the immigrants that were coming from, let's say, the, the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, around those peak years of 1907 and onward. And as we talk a little bit more about immigrants in general and Middle Eastern immigrants, will definitely kind of narrow the focus to the Armenian experience. But what can you tell me about how the industry started for this particular niche market of recording songs from the Middle East in the United States and how that differed from, let's say, the high art that was being 
also gone ahead and marketed with regards to Caruso and other stars as well. As the record companies are looking for ways to make their product work in the marketplace, they're casting around for different stuff, trying to see what'll work. And right about 19, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, right in that period, that little window, the record companies, both of whom have recording studios in New York City, uh, Victor's main studio is in Camden, New Jersey, not that far away, just outside of Philadelphia. Um, and they noticed, you know, how could you miss it? Like America was filling up, East Coast in particular. There's just all these people from all over the world showing up. Um, from Sweden and Italy and Ukraine and everywhere. And so they thought to themselves, huh, wonder if we can get them to buy some records. I don't know. They may not have enough money, but maybe that matters to them. Maybe, maybe they want something from home, right? So we're making these records overseas. Let's see if we try marketing the stuff we're recording overseas for those markets. Can we market them domestically for the immigrants? Well, it worked. Immigrants would buy a gramophone, a Vitrola, for the cafe or something, uh, some public place. Some would buy one for the house. There were very common scams in uh, ethnic newspapers, foreign language newspapers, uh, that would tell you that uh, you too can own a record player in your own home. Just send us five dollars. And we'll send you a machine and a dozen records in your own language. And then the guy would show up to your door with a big crate with a thing and say, uh, okay, the form here says that you got to pay another hundred dollars, which is you know, crazy money. And just, I'm never going to have a hundred dollars. Where am I going to get a hundred dollars from? Oh, sorry. I got to take the machine back. Oh, by the way, they're keeping your $5 deposit. And they defrauded immigrants, these, these scammers, out of millions and millions of dollars. But it all is just an illustration of how much it mattered to the immigrants to have a connection to home, to, particularly if you don't know if you're going back. Like a lot of people came just to earn money and then leave. A lot of people, like basically all the Greeks, for instance, um, yeah, came to make some money and then go back. But if you don't know if you're going back or not, or if you're going to be here a long time, it really matters to have that connection and something familiar, something that makes sense in America, which was so unfamiliar and didn't make sense. And where you knew you were bottom rung and you were being exploited and there was nothing you could do about it, you know. So to have a song that you remember from the weddings or something from back home, it was intensely moving for people. And yeah, they'd be willing to pay for it. And records cost eh, about a dollar, which today is about 20 bucks. It's about the same as a CD. In fact, the price point for records has basically always been about the same. They just keep adding more duration to give you the sense that you're getting more value for your money. But it's basically been the same price point since it began. It's always been about 15 to $25. Now you've got um, a lot of immigrants coming from Europe, from the Middle East, from the uh, Ottoman Empire, sometime around 1907, obviously going through 1920. And as you're starting to see kind of these flood of immigrants going primarily, let's say, to New York, um, obviously there's an industry that is starting to burgeon at this point with regards to ethnic niche recordings being sold to those immigrants. Um, amongst the Ottoman Empire or the Turkish-speaking immigrants that came from the Ottoman Empire, who were some of the breakout stars and from what backgrounds were they, ethnic backgrounds? Well, if you want to look at the what remains, you know, the actual data set that we have, of old recordings of uh, people from what was Ottoman territory still at the time. So 
Bulgaria, present-day Turkey, uh, northern Syria. Um, Greeks were the overwhelming, were, they, lots and lots of Greeks emigrated. A lot of them were from what was then Greece. Uh, a lot of them were from, which is, a, there's island Greeks and there's, um, you know, Athenian Greeks and there's, uh, you know, Greeks from Epirus. Um, so that's a really diverse group of people and they're bound together by the language. And that also includes Greeks from Turkey, from Smyrna and from Pontus, uh, up by the north, north uh, by the Black Sea. So they're bound together by language. And Greeks are recording mostly in Greek, but also in Turkish. Because Turkish is lingua franca for massive swath of the world, what's now, you know, kind of a half a dozen countries, of course. And so Greeks get recorded first and most prolifically, simply because there are more of them. But Turkish begins really being recorded in the U.S. 1912. And it was because there was a guy, M.G. Parzekian, is his name, Armenian guy, who was already in the record business. He was already importing and exporting records. He's an entrepreneur, record entrepreneur, his whole life, basically. Um, 1912, he approaches Columbia Records, apparently, uh, tells them that he has a group of performers, and they make a couple of dozen records uh, for Columbia in the Woolworth Building. Uh, September and October 1912, and those records sell fine. The performers are uh, Armenians, uh, four Armenians, and one Assyrian guy. They were, I think, all from around Diyarbakir. Um, some of the songs that would get recorded shortly thereafter, 1915-1916, are clearly from, from Urfa. Now, at the same time, uh, you know, Greek music is being recorded prolifically, and Armenian performers are turning up on the on the Greek records made by Greeks from present-day Turkey. So, where do you get stars? Where do you get the big names? I don't know. It depends on what household you're talking about. <laughs> Right. You right. know, um, uh, a household with a particular origin story will have a particular set of recordings. The record that sold best to every Turkish speaking household mm -hmm. was uh, was Achilles Poulos, was Nedim Gedim Amerikaya. Why did I come to America? It was called It's a 12 inch disc from 1926. Huge seller. Hundred. 200,000 copies. Every Turkish-speaking household probably owned a copy. It was a Cheftacelli Gazelle on the B-side, but it was Why I Came to America. Um, that was the biggest hit. That's uh, interesting. You know, yeah. in a, an era where immigrants were, in some ways, very thankful for being in the United States, for the opportunity, for the fact that they were not necessarily, let's say, persecuted from where they came from, they were facing their own discrimination, of course, and a massive shift and a massive change in culture. So I, I find it kind of interesting, even in the title, that you've got one of the biggest breakout stars in the Turkish language in this particular era, um, talking and questioning why he or she came to America. What, what was it about that recording and the content that actually sparked people to purchase that particular recording? I think there's a, a real ambivalence. Um, you know, it, there's nothing in the lyrics that denies the desire to go and the, the hope for something new. And But it's also just about, you know, maybe I was better off or maybe things, things felt better back home. Um, it's hard here. I think the message of the song is, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I think that's what the song really says. Let's talk about the first 
Armenians mm. that basically performed in the Turkish language. Um, and in listening to some of your other podcasts, the name Kemani Minas has come exactly. up. Yeah. Yeah. And when I heard the Egan song, huh. uh, I, I, it, it took my breath away. And could you give us a little bit of a background on who he was um, and what this song meant? Uh, Egan's one of the greatest records I've ever heard in my life. I think I own 15 copies. And I keep giving it away. <laughs> I'll buy one from you. <laughs> it's so it's everywhere. It's sold like crazy. And it's so good. And it's amazing that uh, not many people went asking who Kemeni Minas was. And I went around personally for a decade saying we'll never know who Kemeni Minas was. And um, I guess I still don't. <laughs> I guess I'm still in the dark. I did, a few months back, get a, an email out of the blue from Harut Arakelian. And uh, it was at midnight. It just says, you know, instant message on Facebook or something. Hey, man, found Minas. I was like, what? And he sends me a Dropbox link. And I open up the Dropbox link and it's full of digital copies of documents that he came up with. And we cross-reference dates and locations and stuff. And I go like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's him. That's, it's got to be the guy. Um, uh, it's a, a, a guy who was born uh, in the middle of the 19th century. He was quite old and um, came over, worked at the uh, Converse rubber boot factory in Massachusetts. Lots of Armenians, as you know, worked in shoe factories and rubber plants in, in Mass. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, this guy, he had a couple of kids who died. Um, he, you know, fled the Hamadian massacres. Um, and, you know, we put together this kind of story, this life story of this individual who recorded maybe 30 songs or something in 1916, 1917, including Egan, and then died a few months later of vitamin B12 deficiency. And so, you know, he just vanished. You know, the name on the label of the records was Kemeni Minas, which just means Minas, who's a very good violin player. Yeah. So, and Minas is this very common name. So, uh, and then... After I started going around telling that story that Harut and uh, uh, Harry Kazelian and I had kind of put together, Harry starts sending emails and going, yeah, no, no, it's somebody else. And Harry's developed this whole other story of a different guy who was decades younger and who died in California. So there are now two Kemeni Minases or no Kemeni Minas. <laughs> we don't know. It's still, a, it's still, you know, it's a, he's a cipher. He's a, a missing link. But that record sold like crazy. And everything he ever played on was very, very good. Um, I like him a lot, but that record's, I mean, yeah, special. So what, 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 what I'd like to do um, is why don't we go ahead and listen to uh, the Egan song by Kemani Nunes, and we'll come back on the other side and talk a little bit about it. Okay. Thank you. 
Okay, Ian Nagoski, The Egan Song, Kemani Minas. What about this performance kind of struck you? Now, I don't know Turkish. I no. basically know music. Uh, I know what music makes me feel like. This sounded raw. It sounded immediate to me. Yeah. What is the story that he is trying to tell here? Well, this I did find out, which is that it's, uh, it's a, an account of a, uh, a historical event at the end of the 19th century in which, in retaliation for action by members of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation in Istanbul, uh, the Ottoman military sent troops into a village way out in eastern Anatolia by the Euphrates River, this village called Egan, and in one night uh, they burned half the houses and killed a third of the people in this Armenian village, um, just wiped them out. Um, terrible, terrible catastrophe. Now, the Kemeni Minas that we think this might be, the man uh, Minas J. Kusanian, would have grown up about 25 miles away from the village of Agen. And he would have arrived in the United States about three months before the catastrophe of Agen. So, if that's the guy, then he heard about what happened back home and that that village was destroyed and wrote the song thousands of miles away in the United States. Or, if he's this other guy, then he knew about the events uh, by, by still being there, still being in Turkey, and uh, brought the song with him. We don't know. What I do know, and the reason I got excited about the record is, first of all, clearly very personal. Like it matters to the singer. It's, it's because I only read and speak English. The first thing you have to go by is the sound of the person's voice, which is personal. The column of breath that goes in and out of you all day long. And you can tell if somebody's telling you the truth. You can tell if they're being honest or if they're bullshitting you or if they're just trying to get attention or if they're you know being cute Hagen is not cute um it's deeply still uh which makes a strong impression something it's to be listened to and considered and uh and that thing he does with his voice which he doesn't do on any of the other records he performs on that uh breaking thing the yodeling thing that he does between the head and chest voice, which is a, it's a thing people do, particularly in uh, Iran, Azerbaijan, Eastern Anatolia. Um, but he has great control over it, and it's really effective. It's soul-piercing. It's really soul-piercing. I mean, it, yeah. when, when I heard that through, again, your, your discovery um, and your presentation of it on, a, on another uh, program, um, I, I had to sit and really, uh, compose myself because I, 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 again, it's to hear that kind of a performance, um, it, it makes you wonder what place they were in when they went into the studio and usually what, these are one, two, three takes at the most, right? Because yeah. Ian, I think when we listen to a lot of these 78s, we're kind of transported to another world, another time. Um, whereas today... People go into studios and everything is recorded digitally and everything sounds very antiseptic and with MP3s, compressing files, this, that, whatever. Could you kind of paint a picture of what it was like for an artist to go into a recording studio? Where did those usually take place? And then when they walked into that recording studio, what did the recording engineer have set up and what did the artist face as far as limitations to go ahead and lay down these particular songs well 78 rpm records were the dominant format for over 50 years what we call 78 rpm discs 
um, their formulations and what they're actually made of changed widely over that time. But the basic structure of them is ground stone. They're about 70 or 80% ground stone mixed with a little bit of shellac, which about 20% or something, uh, which is an insect secretion. It's a bug goo that's scraped off the trees in South Asia and Burma and Bangladesh. Anyway, the recording sessions also evolved over time. But if you're talking about the 19-teens and the first half of the 20s, basically a performer is in a room uh, with a, a big horn and the engineer sits by uh, a, a machine that is cutting into a wax disc. The engineer will show the performer a card, green, let's say, for start. And the performer plays, the machine starts, and for three minutes, whatever gets done in that room, all the vibrations flow down this horn through a series of tubes and it gets cut into the disc through a mechanical process. Um, and then when there's 10 seconds left before you get to the inside of the disc, the engineer shows a card, let's say yellow, wrap it up and then time's done, three minutes and 10 seconds or whatever it is and red card, stop. You gotta be done by that point, right? Classical performers or big popular performers are getting six, seven, eight, nine, ten takes. Immigrants, black folks, uh, rural people, hillbillies, they're getting one or two takes. <laughs> All right, let's get them in and out. The studios were very productive. In Camden, New Jersey, Victor's studio just ran all day long, people in and out, session after session. And the same thing was true at Columbia Studios in the Woolworth Building in southern Manhattan, um, actually the tallest building in the world at that time. So these off-the-boat immigrants are going into this giant skyscraper, getting into an elevator, which is a brand new thing, um, and going up to the, I think it was the 12th floor or something, to Columbia Studios. The elevators themselves actually ran six days a week because the people who stoked the coal fires in the basement that ran the elevators had to have Sunday off. <laughs> so it was um, it was a very direct process. There was if if something went wrong with a take, you had to do another take. If you know somebody bumped something, if there was a noise in the room, you do another take. Or the disc just gets rejected and you move on to the next thing. Um, or if the tonality of the instruments doesn't work uh, acoustically to cut the groove into the disc. So. In the early Armenian recordings, for instance, one notices there's almost no drums. There's rarely any dumbbell because the percussive sound of the drum, that hard hit, would make the needle jump out of the groove and you couldn't do it. So you had to leave the drum off until after microphones were invented, mm. by and large, for the most part. So you wind up with these records where it's just oud, clarinet, violin, something like that, right? Um, and it, it was a, a process that was refined and refined over decades by very talented engineers who developed systems of different sized and shaped horns and tubes and fixtures in order to capture the sound. Maybe it's, the, the, the acoustical records actually sound pretty amazing and quite vivid, even though they're lacking most of the treble and bass range that we're accustomed to. They tend to be all kind of right in the a middle cluster of frequencies. But they're very alive. And, um, yeah, there's some good stuff got made. Ian, in the ethnic Armenian community, uh, the name of Udi Hrant Kenkulian uh, is very, very uh, popular, especially amongst the Ud players in which Udi Hrant had influenced. So... Could you tell me a little bit about what you know of how Udi Hiran's music was marketed through the medium of 78s in the United States 
And were those particular recordings made in the United States or were they in fact made in Istanbul? Well, his first recordings were made in Istanbul, yes, that's right, and were imported into the United States. Things where he was a backing musician, not things under his own name. People knew who he was, um, and the record companies knew that there was a market demand for things that he simply played on. He was held in that high regard in the 1930s. Um, in particular, uh, there's a, a one record producer, a Greek guy, named Tetos Dimitriades, who was born in Istanbul in 1900 and had family there that he corresponded with. He, in particular, um, had a great ear and uh, a great marketing mind. Um, he's the guy that uh, introduced the song Miserlou um, in 1927. He first recorded it and then subsequently uh, pushed the song for decades until it finally became a big hit and a standard. But that's entirely his work. And he recorded Irish and Finnish and Jews and all kinds of stuff. And he was the head of foreign records for Victor through the 1930s. And he put out lots of Udi Hrant records uh, for the Turkish speaking and, and particularly the Armenian community uh, during that period. So when Udi Hrant finally came to America, uh, there was a waiting audience. There were people who already knew who he was. And it wasn't necessarily all the people who were like Kef people, you know, it wasn't, the audience were not necessarily picnic folks. They were lovers of classical music, of Turkish classical music. Um, and they came to his concerts and, uh, you know, were, were devoted to him. Leo Sarkeesian, who I mentioned earlier, um, who uh, provided me with some, some of his, his 78 collection, told me a story about having seen Prant at uh, Town Hall in New York at one of his very first concerts. It was a beautiful description. He said that, uh, you know, the audience got quiet and Prant was led out by himself to a chair. The whole place is silent. And Prant raises up his right hand and with his left hand, just by hammering on and pulling off in the strings, starts playing a toxin. And as the sound of the toxin swells and fills the hall, all around you would just hear people quietly sobbing at the beauty of it. No one had ever heard someone play that well, and that soulfully and skillfully at the same time. He, he was uh, a, a blind artist, was he not? Yes. Yeah, a blind man. And, um, you know, uh, Sarkeesian told me that uh, years later, uh, he was invited to a party in Washington, D.C. at some rich Armenian's house. And uh, they said, you know, bring your dumbbell along. Um, you can, you can, he, he needs a drummer. And so he brings his dumbbell and uh, uh, they played a, a Sasamai, you know, a classical piece. And uh, they'd never been introduced. And after the piece was done, Front turns back to him and says, who is that playing back there? And Leo laughs and goes, oh, just a little Armenian boy. So, Hrant is, is one of the most wonderful players that ever recorded in the United States, for sure. And the records he made here in the U.S. are a mixed bag, they're complicated, but, you know, so are Billie Holiday's. And as far as I'm concerned, any musically literate American should know the name Udi Hrant in the same way that any musically literate American would know the name Billie Holiday. That concludes part one of my conversation with Ian Nagoski. The second and final part will be released on Tuesday, July 14th, 2020, when Ian explores more recordings, ties them to history, and tells the stories behind them. Before I play a final piece to close out this program, a quick word on a new digital album release of my own pomegranate music record label. Vigen Hofsepian's Nemrut, live from Yerevan 2019, is a tasteful contemporary take on Armenian folk music as performed by one of the most talented vocalists in Armenia. If you liked Vigen's first two albums, I think you'll really enjoy his latest work. A few notes on some of the music on today's program. The Egan song, performed by Kemani Minas, was recorded in the Turkish language and released 
1917 on Columbia Records. To close it out today, we have Udi Hrant singing Egen, but in the Armenian language, which was quite rare for the blind Ud master. This recording was done in the 1950s and is available on both Ian Nagoski's Canary record label as well as Harold Hagopian's traditional Crossroads record label. Thanks for listening and talk with you next week. Here's Udi Hudant. songs featured on this program today were shared with permission from Canary Records. This is a Pomegranate Music production.